0: Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our Warning Premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Very, very pleased this afternoon to be joined by Dr. Ian Marcus Corbin, who, along with Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy wrote a rather remarkable essay in the Daily Beast. And I'm privileged this afternoon to be able to spend some time with Ian and talk about it. And I'm just gonna begin by reading the opening paragraphs of it. The title is, The Left Needs a Spiritual Renaissance, So Does America. As neoliberalism falters, It's time to reclaim the legacy of Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, Robert Kennedy, and other leaders. Throw a rock down a busy street and chances are you won't hit a single American who feels good about the state of American political dialogue. Those of us on the left can choose to take comfort in a sense of relative innocence as the demagoguery and divisiveness on the right rise to a fever pitch. But scratch the surface, and you will find that nearly everyone of whatever party feels an emptiness, a soullessness to our shared political life. As we brace ourselves for an election season that threatens to be even more fractious, bombastic, and incoherent than our last one, the left cannot and should not simply count on the continued meltdown of the right. The deep truth is that American life needs a radical reframe, one that will require more than smart policy proposals, vague promises of growth, or even thundering denunciations of our opponents. If we're going to pull out of this national nosedive, left politics needs a spiritual renaissance. Pretty remarkable paragraphs coming from a Harvard philosophy professor and a United States senator about the conditions of American politics.
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels like a remarkable moment, doesn't it?
0: Is the country in decline? Yeah, probably. I think the answer to the question, just so you too, as you, as you ponder it, is I, I think beyond any question it takes almost the suspension of what's in front of you right a reality to believe that it's that it's not but so i i don't so i I have a firm opinion on that but i
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm looking out right now on uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is not particularly in decline, which is uh, really quite a a lovely place and and thriving in lots of ways. Um, And I think, you know, America has a lot of parts to it and not all of it's in decline. We're not we're not really falling apart in any literal sense. I do think that the sort of governing dispensation that we share as a people and that is supposed to sort of structure our, our common public life together. I think that is, that's not just in decline. I think that is sort of run out of gas. Um, and I think that's a lot of the sort of, you know, confusion and panic you see on lots of sides right now is a sense that the, the thing we're supposed to be able to agree on that would sort of govern our, you know, 300 odd million lives together uh, doesn't work anymore. And this isn't, um, the first time this has happened um you know when I mean, we go through through different periods in our history um a lot of the examples of the thinkers and maybe all, all the examples of the thinkers that chris and i cite in in the piece they're coming at, at another moment of sort of denouement um, and there's fighting in the streets and there's a sense that the center will not hold and people are quoting wb yates <laughs> and uh you know they're kind of of grasping around to, to find some new framework that might give us a structure to work with. Um, the one that was proposed by MLK, Robert F. Kennedy, Mahatma Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, um, I think wasn't really taken up ultimately, um, not least because you know a numerical majority of those people were gunned down. Um, and, uh, you know, what we ended up with was a kind of from what I understand, I wasn't alive, but from what I understand from reading is a sort of a decade of kind of wandering and stagnation. And, and then there was a new proposal in the late 70s, early 80s that ended up kind of working for a while, working well enough, um, which Chris and I you know, roughly labeled the, the neoliberal consensus. Um, and I think that in lots of ways that we, we could talk about that's running out of gas right now across the, the wealthy developed world. And you know, people are kind of desperately looking around and and sort of desperately you know, circling the wagons and throwing up walls um, you know, as they try to figure out figure out what comes next. I,
0: one thing I want to talk to you about before we move on to the to the heart of what you're talking about, which is really a spiritual uh, reawakening in the in the country. and we'll we'll talk about those themes. But one thing you said, um, that I that I think is 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 opposite to a recent experience that 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 I've had in a, in an emotional and visceral way in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up in North Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, like Chris, in the tri-state area. Um, I distinctly remember, you know, going to ball games in New York City. In the late 1970s, 77, 78, New York, a trip to Penn Station, Port Authority, um, was an extraordinary experience for a kid to see what was on the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel. Right? I mean, it was it was it was, it was fundamentally it was almost lawless, right? In a in a in a in a way. But if you you go to San Francisco. Yep. right? And I'm not talking about the caricature of that, like many of like my parents, friends believe that Portland was burned to the ground five years ago by the forces of Antifa. But I'm, I'm talking about human misery at an epic scale, uh, the homelessness crisis, the open air drug markets, that when you see it, and you experience it, at age 52, my, my reaction to it isn't a political reaction, yeah. it's a, wow, is the society collapsing? Is it, is it falling apart? Because this did not exist like this 10 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago, seven, eight years ago. And I just wonder, when you look at some of these issues, the state of some of the cities, the spiral that places like San Francisco seem to be in, and you look at the totality of our institutions, the collapse of trust, the decay, um, the division, how do you assess all of these things in a historical context right we're we're at we're at what comparable moment in american history or what comparable moments in american history can offer us some guidance and what qualities of leadership mm-hmm. right are required right from that condition right to start heading out of it
1: yeah yeah um gosh i mean historically i think i'll struggle to find the right the right analogy um as i say that the late 60s and through the 70s was a really chaotic time i mean there was domestic terrorism on a scale that we would you know would be horrifying to us um so there was again definitely a feeling of of coming apart. And if you have a better historical comparison, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Um, in terms of what's what's needed or, or what worked politically, um, you know, the kind of tradition that Chris and I are pointing to in the piece, um, you know, it it tended to have roots in Christianity, which makes sense for America historically. Um, but, it, but it's funny you can. You can listen to the speeches that Robert F. Kennedy delivered, um, and as we mentioned in the piece, he was he was cobbling together until he was killed uh, a, a coalition that had been kind of unheard of. He was he was pulling in for disenfranchised blacks, he was pulling in working class whites, and he was he was uniting this new sort of coalition. You know, you think, well, maybe this is some kind of political genius, maybe this is you know some kind of great rhetorician, and he was okay. He's a pretty good speaker. Um, what's striking to me when I look back at what he said and did that, that really some people found so deeply moving and compelling was it was kind of basic decency actually. Um, it was like some deep moral conviction. Like he clearly meant this stuff down to his bones, right? And I have the impression from kind of reading about his interactions with, with potential voters, with hostile voters, you know, he would get taken to an inner city black community and they would they would hate him, right? And his his handlers would try to pull him out immediately. And he would be like, no, 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 I'm staying. And he would stay for three or four hours <laughs> and like take whatever abuse was gonna come at him. And eventually by the time he left, they would be like, we'll do whatever we can for you, Bobby. Like we'll do whatever it takes. And and it, it really was just, I mean, on one level, just basic stuff, like genuinely listening, being like an actual human being um, who cares about making people's lives better. And it's not lying and it's not focus grouped and is just sort of genuine to the point where I think, you know, he, he would lose, like he would, he would be willing to lose in order to, to defend what he thought was, was the right thing, right? Like, I, I don't see that many, and certainly on the sort of the national stage on the sort of people running for president level. Um, I think Bernie Sanders is a guy who strikes me as someone who, who would lose an election in order to, to, to do what no he question. thinks. No He's question. No his- question. It's self
0: evident that Bernie Sanders is a man of tremendous, tremendous conviction,
1: yep. and people find um, that, in that and, and find in that.
0: character. And for the life of me, I don't know why it is that we have disintegrated the concept that it's impossible to disagree with someone politically yet admire very, very deeply. Their character, their courage, and their and their convictions, because an en- elemental to this entire enterprise is the ability to reach compromises with people that you have disagreement with.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think speaking from a place of deep conviction, where people can tell, like, this isn't focus group. This isn't what this person is saying. I mean, contrast it with Mitt Romney who has a lot of virtues as a person, it seems, but when he speaks, you don't believe him um, because he seems like he's he's saying you know what he's been told to say, right? what, what seems sort of useful in this particular moment. Um, so that's a lot of it. I mean, just drawing from deep wells and being willing to sort of take whatever consequences may come in order to tell the truth. Um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound like that fancy uh, um, you know a skill set, but but that seems to me to be uh, to be a lot of it.
0: You you talked for um a bit about the violence, right? That you know, all of these people are gunned down yeah. um in the nineteen sixties, late nineteen sixties. Um and they're gunned down in this moment of civil rights advancement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and this legacy of the gun in this country. Uh, so far as it pertains to civil rights. And, you know, this is forgotten, right, in the history of the American character. But in 1865, right, we have America's greatest and most tragic assassination in terms of the loss of a leader of spectacular dimensions, and that was Abraham Lincoln, right? So Abraham Lincoln was preceded, um, by, before Trump, the worst, history, the worst president in American history, Buchanan, and, and he was followed um, by the second worst president in American history until Trump. You had, you had another person, a uh, great champion of civil rights in 1880, James Garfield. Garfield's assassinated um, and then you have another Republican president that's killed and killed in 1900, and all of these events, right, alter the trajectory, the trajectories of history, mm-hmm. in a in a profound way. Um, the loss of these leaders in the in the late 1960s, we we have not seen a style of leadership from anybody right who approximates what what they did so those assassinations at a fundamental level severed an era right yeah. they ended yeah. um, they ended in yeah. a in a decisive manner a uh, possibility right yeah. and that's why that's why assassination is a particularly terrible type of murder right yeah. there's the murder of the human life Right. There's the damage to the family. But when we talk about these people, right, they they murdered for a nation. uh, The possibilities. Right. Mm -hmm. That I think in this remarkable essay, you and the senator are talking about
1: reawakening. Yeah, I hope so. And I I mean, I really hope so. And I I like I like how you're thinking about assassination. That's I think that's excellent. There, there's this interesting stat. So one of the things that I study, um, and one of the reasons why I'm a philosopher hanging out with neuroscientists and neurologists at, at Harvard Medical School, um, is that we look in an interdisciplinary way at, at sort of loneliness and isolation and belonging, which you know I know are kind of forefront on a lot of people's minds right now. And in a in a conversation not at all unrelated to the political one that we're we're having right now, right. Um, so, there have been two, two, the two largest spikes in self reported loneliness in the past 70 years in America happened in the two weeks following the assassination of JFK and then the two weeks following 9 11. Um, right. So, like, there's, I think, this, this is really interesting about that, right? Because, like, okay, a leader was killed. Okay. That means the vice president pops in and now he's in charge, right? Or, like, you know, there was an attack on on several thousand people in New York City. Now we we fight back, whatever. It's not sort of immediately clear why people should feel deeply lonely after that, um, but I think that there is something really important about sort of these symbolic acts of violence, right? To say like, no, 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 like what you think is the sort of governing reality in your society, I kill it, right? Like, it's over, right? I put to death, I put to death that that sort of picture of the world, and you know why why it is that the you know the world trade center seemed like that symbolic core um in 2001 is really interesting question i i I think there's there's something to get into there um but yeah so so absolutely like people are left feeling kind of lonely and rudderless and and adrift in the wake of these these sort of these, these killings
0: talk about i'm curious what you mean by that with the world trade center as a totem of american
1: commercial power yeah, well, I mean, rough, very roughly speaking, now, um, you know, you have that sort of like the MLK RFK, you know, Chavez Gandhi uh, moment, sort or, or proposal that gets just sort of gunned out of existence in the uh, in the late sixties and into the seventies, um, and then finally Reagan and Thatcher come along, um, and they say there is no such thing as society. What we have here is a sort of good-natured competition right? And if we all compete well and fairly, we start on the same starting line, we play according to the same rules, it will ultimately turn out to be to be good for all of us. But but that's at least what we can agree on as a people, right? Like that sort of more metaphysical stuff, like that clearly didn't work, you know, this sort of American immune system rejected it, right? Um, but, you know, we can at least say, let's play fair, right? Let's have a level playing field of a, of a society. And let's sort of get out there and have, have, have the American dream together. Like, let's leave our kids with more money than we started with, whatever. Um, and so the idea that if you want to strike at the heart of America in 2001, after, you know, about 20 years, about a generation of, of, of that governing dispensation, you hit at a financial center in New York, like, that's just an interesting symbolic choice is what I'm saying.
0: I'm going to keep reading reading from this because I, it segues in. For approximately 40 years, Americans across the spectrum have been working within a picture of society that is broadly known as neoliberalism. In its simplest formulation, neoliberalism defines the good society as a level playing field where everyone is invited to compete for the scarce commodities of status and wealth, regardless of race, religion, sexual organization, The market, fetishized by neoliberals as the just and ethical arbiter of all things, decides the outcome, meaning the winners fully deserve their winnings and the losers their losses. In the interest of basic decency and stability, society may be willing to subsidize the lives of the poor, but only grudgingly, and with plenty of strings attached. Near-blind faith is vested in innovators and technocrats, who we desperately hope can engineer us into a better reality. But it is becoming undeniable in 2023 that a great deal of this clever engineering is only serving to sow division, isolation, and anxiety. The emptiness so many Americans feel is related to a public life stubbornly grounded in this failed neoliberal consensus, which tacitly instructs us that consumerism, wealth accumulation and individual achievement are the main paths to happiness. That's a pretty incredible set of paragraphs continuing on from a United States senator oh, yeah. and from a philosophy professor and they're they're extraordinary. I just let just as you're writing them I mean they mean what they mean but is there as you just hear me reading them to you Is there? Does it trigger you to say anything?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. I'm a philosopher, and so unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I'll probably quote Aristotle a few times uh, during our conversation. Um, So, his his, he's very famous for writing about friendship, Um, and he says that there are different kinds of friendship. there's one that's sort of based on practical utility, right? So maybe you and I are gonna make some money together, Steve. And so, you know, we're kind of bonded for a time. We share that goal of growing this company and making it go public, whatever. Um, He thinks that is a kind of friendship, uh, but he he thinks it's a kind of secondary kind. It's an inferior kind. um, And that, you know, the deeper lifelong, really sort of generative kind of friendship is one that's based on, sort of a a common understanding of what is truly good and valuable in life, what it means to be a a good kind of human, you know, what kind of actions are are actions that I should aspire to, um, and a sort of shared tendency to pursue those things together, right, that's a friendship that will run through lots of highs and lows and, 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 you know, isn't dependent on well, you know, were we able to take it public, like, you know, did did the company make a lot of money or not? Um, it's a sort of deeper, more persistent thing, and and I think, um, yeah, I think. Look, in times of uh, great and growing prosperity, and then there were times in that period from from you know the early '80s onward where it did seem like all boats were rising and and the sky was was the limit, and that everyone could get a, a piece of of this pie. You know, during periods like that. Um, you know, maybe a shared shared monetary interest or a shared utilitarian interest is enough to bind the people together for a little bit. I think it works especially well if you have a common existential foe, right? So, like the role played by the Soviet the Soviet bloc through that period shouldn't be underestimated, right? And um, you know, the the loss of that common foe at the end of the of the eighties was a massive massive event and. I think in some ways, you know, we may be still kind of living through um, what happens after we have a, a common enemy, what happens after you know, Islamic fundamentalism doesn't turn out to be quite the existential foe. Some people were hoping it would be. Um, and yeah, I think that what would make a durable and deep and serious American common life, a, a, a durable and deep sense of civic friendship among Americans is this sort of like deeper picture of like okay what what is fundamentally like what's going on on earth like (laughs) what we're here for 80 years and then we disappear like you know we have this (laughs) rich inner life and like you know our sociality is so freighted with all of this incredible nuance and depth and and seriousness and like what like what is this right like you know stories that try to say something about that and say well here's what we think it is. Like, here's what we think it means to do this thing well, right? Here's what might matter and here's what wouldn't matter so much. If you can in find what you share a lot about with that, like that can, that can carry you through anything. And so I, is, I, what we'd hope in this time of, of denouement and, and sort of, you know, relative disintegration, wouldn't it be beautiful if we could get back to the work of trying to think together in a serious way about this stuff?
0: Near blind faith, Is vested in innovators and technocrats Mm -hmm. who we desperately hope can engineer us into a better reality. And the only thing I can think when I read that is Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg in the octagon cage match, (laughs) which a billion people are gonna around the world. And if you're thinking about two people, you know, out of the eight billion, you know, that you'd want to lead us, right there. Towards the bottom of my list, but um, it is extraordinary, right, when you when you look at the situation at the top. And I think you you look at people who have accumulations of of wealth that are extraordinary against any standard in the history of human civilization, of the American Republic, and, and literally. Um, They have enough money to build their own space stations, and they're going to be fighting in a ring um, to please the TikTok audience, Um, while 40% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available for an emergency. Tens and tens of millions of people are unbanked and shut out of the financial industry, um, what, I, what I would say to you with regard to the Reagan and Thatcher era is, is this, about pendulums, I, I suppose, would would be how I think about it. I, I have always understood the new, the new Deal and what FDR did. And there's all manner of arguments that are made by economists. And I'm not an economist. After all the years I've spent in political campaigns I finally have have reached the amount of on, honesty with myself. I don't understand necessarily what Larry Summers is talking about, right? Or this person is talking about um you know at at the at the deepest level and try to try to use some common sense. But what I you know so so there's a debate about what the new deal did and didn't do economically, but yeah. it sure saved free market American capitalism um you know there was there was every reason to believe there could be a fascist movement that took hold in 1930s yeah. um, uh, 1930s america but what fdr did um was through establishing a social safety net um and a retirement system um he restored faith and belief in the system and then that system was institutionalized by a Republican president, Eisenhower. Eisenhower didn't seek to nullify the New Deal. Eisenhower institutionalized the New Deal. By 1952 to 1960, these things weren't being debated. The debate moves on. It's about the expansion. In the same way, it's really Bill Clinton Right, and the new Democrats that institutionalize, right, a softer, more restrained version of the you know, free market principles of Reagan and Thatcher, which indisputably, you know, reinvigorate moribund economies um in nineteen seventies uh, Britain. In 1980s, United States, but along with the technological disruption um, caused by the rise of the internet, you know I've, i I think we're very much in this era that is reminiscent, and I and I, I couldn't think it's more appropriate, right, you know, in this as we look at you know this we're, we're in this era that's very reminiscent of the of the Edwardian age before the Titanic sank. And it's it it is it it's deep, right? That you have another vessel, um unprepared, you know, human arrogance down to sea, you know, that now share in the Titanic experience, this metaphor of great, great wealth, mm-hmm. right? And this idea that wealth insulates you from risk, right? You can go anywhere, see anything, right, without the lessons. Right, that the original Titanic or that age, that that age tries to teach. But certainly the the inequalities, right, that, that you write about are, are fundamentally destabilizing to a democratic society. And you and you're seeing that. Now the 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 way that politics works is that you look at this and you hope for rationality. Right. The system is broken because of A, B, and C, and therefore right, that you hope the reaction will be to fix A, B, and C. But because A, B, and C are broken, what it can produce is a demagogue right, of the, of the nature of Trump. But if I look at the Democratic Party and you steep your essay, Right in a revival of the left, Mm -hmm. right, and I understand a revival of the left, which prefaces, right, I suppose, a revival of the Democratic Party. In your essay, right, you're both very clear the purpose of this, right, the purpose of this revival is for America, right. John Kennedy said, you know, what. What, what is the purpose of a political party unless it exists for the advancement of great national purpose, right? So that's, that's what your essay in my mind is arguing, right? Mm-hmm. But how do you think about the fact when you, when you, when you consider this autocratic movement that, that threatens the country, that is fascistic in character, that the entity, the institution that inarguably has not met the moment in terms of being able to put it down is the democratic party of of this era that exists as does the other party for the purposes of sustaining, conserving and advancing the american revolution and the freedoms as we have expanded them in the constitution of the united states
1: yeah i so i'm you know i'm in the the, the heart of blue america right here in in arbert square in cambridge and i have i i've existed since about 2016 in a, in a state of astonishment um, at the either inability or unwillingness of people in places like this to actually reckon with what's going on. Um, you know, there there, seem, there generally seems to be this sort of sense that if we could just sort of shout down the bad orange man or whichever of his cronies, you know, is kind of stepping up, um, you know, get these particular bad political actors out of office, whatever, that that things would be fine. America would be in good shape after that. And I mean, I guess it must be kind of easy or at least plausible to believe that if you've kind of lived your whole physical and spiritual life in in a place like Cambridge, um, where, you know, by lots of measures, the the old dispensations worked pretty well for you. Um, but I mean, part of the reason why when i when I got to know Chris Murphy a little bit and started to see that the things he was publishing and the things he's grappling with, i was I was so excited because. Um, I, again, I've been so disappointed with sort of establishment left and liberal um, institutions and and leaders over the past several years to even try to think down to the roots of this, like try to think why would Americans be voting for this psychotic television host, right? Like who thought, who thought before 2016 that Donald Trump was like a human with redeeming characteristics, like, like he's not a good guy, like, and why in the world you know, is a serious quorum of Americans voting for him? Like, what's going on in their lives? What is that like for them? And and um, I think someone like Chris is is really interested in that, and I I think it speaks very highly of him. But yeah, our the failure of our political class to take this seriously, um, I I kind of don't know what to say about it. It's 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 been it's been a, a huge surprise. Let,
0: let me read these. Let me read these paragraphs, and I'll have a conversation about the Bezos yacht with you. It is impossible to be happy and fulfilled without a certain degree of financial security. Inarguably true. Economic inequality is a plague that undermines our social bonds and damages our national psyche. Unquestionably true. Prosperity can allow us to be more generous and creative. Social goods that are difficult to contemplate when you're struggling for basic survival. Again, unquestionably true, but pursuit of material gain simply for the sake of material gain rarely brings fulfillment, right? All through history, right? Every religious, every religion, every philosopher, every everyone's had a lesson on that. Americans do want a firm economic floor that guarantees everyone access to the basic necessities of life, but they also want our politics to be organized around the question of what makes a society good. This is why we need spirituality at its core. It is an attempt to ask and answer deep fundamental questions about the world, the self, and society. Now, you would agree, I think, that an application of the sentence that is, this is why we need spiritual, spirituality as core, is an attempt to ask and answer deep fundamental questions about the world of self and society, right? That when, when you see vast thousands in a city like San Francisco, laid out, helpless, living in uncontained misery, with needles sticking out of their arms, right? That whatever that is,
1: That's not compassion. So I don't know what to say about that. I went to San Francisco pretty recently and I was appalled like everyone else. My wife and I accidentally stayed in the tenderloin because we didn't know what we were doing. Um, And it was, you know, the the hellscape you're describing. Um, And, you know, there is this sort of very poetic juxtaposition where like, you know, sort of crowded with Teslas and with, you know, encampments on sidewalks, right? Like the two the two big sides um, in contemporary America. Um, I've been told, and, and this is not something I've looked into deeply enough, that um, it's a certain form of excessive compassion that leads to that scene where San Francisco offers like way better benefits for the homeless than most other cities. And so people kind of come to it as a magnet and crowd in to have access to them. I don't know whether that's true. I mean, yeah. So, so it, it may be a certain kind of compassion.
0: When when you when you think about this, like as a philosophical matter, right? You yeah. think about our politics, right? You look at Jeff Bezos's yacht, right? It's <laughs> $500 dollars, right? So this is this is a half a billion dollar boat. Yeah. It has a chase boat that's two hundred sixty feet in length that services that boat. Now he built the company, created it. It was his idea. He's fundamentally changed the world commercially. He is one of the greatest entrepreneurs, innovators, business geniuses Mm -hmm. that has, that has ever been. Um every bit as much as the Edisons and, uh, and the Vanderbilts of, uh, and, and the Rockefellers of a different age. There, there are scores and scores of people who make good livings and put their kids through school where that, where that ship was built. Mm-hmm. Um, scores of craftsmen and plumbers. Are you arguing for a society... Where a Jeff Bezos can't build that company, can't keep that company, can't do whatever it is that he wants with the money that he, Jeff Bezos, earned. At the same time, right, as you think about the structures of this, again, 40% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available. Um, two other billionaires are at a cultural level, occupying the space that fighting, and it will be the biggest fight in all of history, right? These people play an outsized role in society um, yeah. that's, that's at an interesting space. I mean, how, how do you think about that as an American, as a man of the left, as a philosopher inside a free market American society that rewards achievement defined by commercial success?
1: Yeah. Do you Uh, want to limit it? Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, I think we could start with, um, you know, having these companies pay a market rate. Um, You know, if we want to stick inside a market framework, paying a market rate in wages. Um, I I didn't look it up. I didn't know we would talk about Bezos. Um, I know Walmart and I, I believe Amazon as well, Like um, a very significant proportion of their workforce is dependent on public assistance to survive. Um, So you you have these big companies that have been made such success, have amazing profit margins. They couldn't have those margins if they had to pay people what it takes to survive, right? Why?
0: But what do you think prevents Democratic Party, right, from and its politicians, as a general proposition, from saying, hey? Mr. Taxpayer, that guy is screwing all of you. yeah, because his workers aren't compensated by him. Yeah. He spends that money on the boat. You compensate the employees because those employees are on public assistance, and those employees shouldn't be on public assistance. But doesn't that require you to make an argument that says, as a general proposition, the society wants as few people as possible on public assistance of any type, yeah, without stigmatizing it?
1: I think that society wants as few people as possible on public assistance. Yeah, Um, I think it's necessary at times. Um, I grew up on welfare myself, and I don't know what we would have done without it. Um, But I think you want good and dignified work. Um, I think you wanna be able to, I mean, humans don't do well when they're sitting around. right? Like you want to have projects. You wanna feel like you're contributing to your community, to your society. Um, and so I think welfare is a very really necessary safety net and it's good that we often call it a safety net, but yeah, you, you want, frankly, you're gonna need labor unions and you're gonna need to undo a lot of what Reagan and Thatcher did to crush labor unions. And, and you know, look, like I, I read this once, uh, maybe your fact checkers can help me out, but I read that a very high proportion of Congress people um, have a, a, a better record of investing than Warren Buffett does. Um, yeah. Right, they they come into Congress and then somehow by the time they come out, they're all millionaires. Um, they're deeply invested in this system. And it's it, it's not just Bezos and Musk who get rich, when you know workers are undercompensated, and when you know local operations are undercut by like global conglomerates, right? Like shareholders writ large get rich, right? So you have you you have these really fantastical sort of interludes in American life where it looks like the real world economy is doing horribly, but somehow the stock market is soaring, right? Um, and so um, yeah, I mean I I yeah I, absolutely.
0: I you know, I've always looked at, you know, on the question of labor unions in the 1970s, uh, America, 1980s, America, you know, management in the labor unions, for example, in the audio industry, like very nearly bankrupted each other. Right. They were two scorpions in the in the bottle. And I think every effective model all over the world is a partnership, right? Where labor has a seat at the table, management. And they and they the practical realities is that they operate the company where labor isn't forced to submit to the shareholder uh, the basic dignities of life for some type of reason. So I think that right, yeah. when you the, when you yeah, talk, the talk about the Reagan yeah. Thatcher era, right? There's this there's this kind of there's so many Americans, right, that admire Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was reelected with 49 states right mm-hmm. you know a lot of people older people like ronald reagan admire margaret thatcher but i think indisputably the hollowing out of the labor movement on a 40 year basis has created a situation where the guy who has the 500 million dollar boat right has is ha- highly regulating you know when his employees can stop for bathroom breaks right and to me Right. (laughs) That's 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 when the pendulum has gone, you know, well past, you know, it's 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 it's, uh, it's it's opposite swing and it's time to it's time to to bring it back.
1: Yeah. And I mean, labor unions are not just about, um, you know, winning higher wages. They are about that. And, and absent a labor union, it's, you know, it's hard to see how you can, like, I can't negotiate with Amazon if I take a job there. Like yeah. they, have and I don't. So it's hard to see how you can get, a, get around that. But but they're also not just about wages in, in a couple of ways. So first of all, they, you know, they're a lot of them, a lot of the unions call themselves brotherhoods, right? Like there is a deep sense of solidarity, in a more substantial sense than just like let's right. get some more money out of this guy right like a lot of the the historically successful labor unions or labor movements um had a, had a story about like we are craftsmen like we're we're artisans like we're doing something that is beautiful and serious and difficult and it's not for everyone but we are a brotherhood and we do this that's the kind of thing that's the kind of work that can give meaning to your like adult productive years right I feel like you're part of something that's genuinely good. And, and so that's why I I've, I've loved when when um Senator Murphy has has talked about like not just sort of getting workers more money, but like what is dignified work that might give might might you know contribute to a sense of, of meaning in your life. Um so yeah, I I think we're on the same page. I think it's and, and you know it's funny because um labor unions are not unpopular among the American people. And in fact, no. I I think they're they're quite popular if you ask them about it. I mean, there are certain sectors, I think. Look, I mean, a labor union is not a, not a fix-all, right? And like, there are certain moments and situations where labor unions have not been good. Um, you need to do it well. Um, but on the whole, I think Americans are are quite supportive. And, and there isn't a ton of reason outside, I think, of our political discourse and our political class um, to not really go hard on that. Um, you know, I, I was starting to say before I lost my train of thought <laughs> that, uh, you know, a lot of the people... Who are pulling these levers, and and that includes like you know smart smart guys, smart professors here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That includes you know think tankers. That includes um, political operatives and politicians. Like they're deeply benefiting from this system, right? Like they are shareholders, and you know from that vantage point, like it, it might look like shareholder capitalism is is actually doing quite well, right? Um, might look like we don't. There's not a time we do need to sort of radically change.
0: I think that one of the things when you talked earlier about loneliness that's so important to understand for people analyzing this moment and how we got here,
1: Mm -hmm. we
0: got here in large measure because of loneliness. And if you go back to 2016 and you watch a Hillary Clinton rally- And turn the sound off. And I did this at the time. I'd say, where are the machine gun nests, right? Pointing the guns at these people, right? What a joyless crowd, right? No smiles, grim, lifeless, right? You watch a Trump rally, right? It's a joyous, though menacing, fascistic affair. But he gave. Lonely people, belonging, community, and purpose. Mm -hmm. Right, MAGA, right, became the island for a lot of misfit toys in our politics the extremists, the neo Nazis, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, but also a lot of very lonely people, right, who are afraid. Mm insecure yeah, and deeply, deeply angry, not at Republicans, no. though it's Republicans who support the hedge fund community and all of the economic interests that are certainly unsympathetic to these people. What they are mad at are the people at the top. And the people at the top, culturally, are imposing all manner of indignities upon them mm-hmm. including to some 40 year old guy that if you don't say your pronoun in the meeting you're a racist you're going to be fired you're a this for sure or that Every white male over fifty is responsible for all the faults of the world, and if that's the message that that person hears in a two-party system, that person yeah. reacts to that. You don't need a psychology degree or a philosophy degree, right? Right. If you know anything about the American about the American character, that elicits the "fuck you" response. Always has. That's Whoa. why we're an independent country.
1: I think across every, I mean, I, you see it all over the world right now. Like, I think the combination of an economic system that, you know, it offers you an exchange. It's like, okay, well, the dignified work that might leave, right. We're going to automate, we're going to, uh, you know, offshore, we're going to lower the cost of consumer goods. You're going to be able to buy cheap shit, but like, you know, you're going to be, a you know, working some job that's sort of menial and, and robotic. Like that's the, the trade that's been offered and, and, it's turned out to be a pretty bad trade, right? And like the idea that this this would you know the compensation would be adequate and this would be actually a good sort of society we'd be building, um, has turned out I think to just be flatly wrong, right? Like all boats don't rise in the way that people were promised they would. And then at the same time to explain the stagnation of certain regions in America just via these cultural categories, these repudiations, like these are sort of desperate gun clingers, these are like deplorables, like these are all racists, like, oh, it's too bad you don't, you know, like, you know, happy modern economic life. Like, if you weren't a racist, you'd be doing great. Like, it's astonishing. It's infuriating. Like, they're not accusing me personally, but I could, I would be, I would be incredibly angry.
0: I think, I think one of the most astonishing aspects of the COVID era um, is that you have a million people thus far that have been killed by opioids, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have taking this back, right? Want to talk about corporate greed? You literally have an American family yeah. company I know. that's killed a million people. And, and whatever the number is, right, that by the time you get to the end, right, because the fentanyl crisis, everything is is derivative. You have millions of people. And then you have the millions of people compounding after that, who are the survivors, the spouses, the family, right, whose families have been devastated, The opioid epidemic was brought to America by the Sackler family, but also the FDA. And so you had people coming out of government, going to the pharmaceutical and vice versa in a revolving door where the pharmaceutical lawyers were writing the regs alongside the FDA regulators who went in and got jobs. So, all of this happens. All of it is indisputable. Nobody knows about this. No one talks about this in national politics until 2016, really, the opioid epidemic. This is a very, very minor issue, right? There's no awareness. And then a few years later, you have the government mandating, hey, take this vaccine. It's no. good for you. And you see a reaction in the black community. Mm-hmm. And you see a reaction in a in a now political Republican community. We view everything politically, but really, right? It's a socioeconomic group that's been ravaged by opioids that says, go fuck yourself. That's man. Right. And then and then, right, they're condemned, called stupid.
1: Oh, and worse and worse. And, but yeah.
0: and worse. Right. And so what was what was it about Bobby Kennedy by 1968 in his evolution? Because he was a clearly he was a very, very different person by 1968. He was a different person in the spring of 1968 than he was in the autumn of 1967
1: yeah. Great. he
0: was he was we were watching someone become something mm-hmm. in real time yeah. the country was was before my birth and then it was taken
1: yeah i agree yeah i mean are you asking about how that transition took place or what's the i'm, I'm,
0: a- I'm asking you about the Astonishing evolution of a human playing out during a political campaign, and over the course of a decade, he was he was a ruthless guy. Yeah, totally. He was he was he was hard. He was hardcore in a yeah. in a hardcore, hardcore business.
1: That's right. Yeah, I mean, I've read some stuff about him. I, I don't couldn't claim to know his sort of deep psychology. I mean, he he was hit, I think, by all accounts, extremely hard by the death of his brother um, and felt a sort of like, felt that there were extremely high stakes. There was something like a sort of generational importance going on here that, you know, um, you know he had been kind of broken by the, you know, I think there's a lot of hope around JFK and, I think you know Bobby had felt particularly broken by his brother's assassination, and and maybe came with a special kind of you know messianic fire into into his candidacy. But then I think very importantly, he like got off the got off the bus and you know went to rural Appalachia, uh, went to the Deep South, like spent a lot of time on on Indian reservations. Um, And again, in all these situations, his staff would be like, Bobby, let's go, let's get out of here. Like we have, you know, we're missing our next stop or whatever. And he would stay in these, these really impoverished places. And he would just like look people in the eye and, and, and have this deep connection and, and was like beloved by these communities, Uh, still is in lots of cases. And I think he was just sort of radicalized by the suffering um, and had a sort of deeply human confrontation with it. And it, and I think it changed him. and yeah, I don't know. There, there may be a lot more to it than that, but th- that's that's what I can see is is something special about that kind of raw, naked, in person sort of sort of confrontation. Um, when you
0: when you when you think about when you think about this moment in in American life. The divisions in it. Yeah. You co authored this with a United States senator. Do you think there's anybody else who's really talking about these issues the way that he is talking about them?
1: I mean, not from the left, honestly. That's part of why it's been so exciting to, you know, to see what he's been up to um you know I think by by way of a little bit of quick biography I I you know I I came up on the right in a lot of ways I, my first article I ever published was was for first things and in lots of ways I, I I you know as my life's gone on I've I've moved away from from that um and certainly very much on economic issues um I've moved away from from you know the kind of fusionism of of my of, of my adolescence, um, one thing that I've not grown away from is, um, you know, the willingness of people, conservatives of different kinds, so probably not you know Republican congressmen, but like conservatives of various kinds, to to want to ponder these deep issues and to be friendly towards religion. Um, and I think you know, for reasons that the senator and I address quickly in the piece. You know, liberals and the and the left in America um, have grown very uncomfortable with this sort of stuff, um, and you know they think, oh, are you are you reading Aristotle and trying to think about what a good human society looks like? You know, that's sort of, um, you know, that that sounds a little bit crusty and conservative, um, and maybe like you're trying to tell everyone how they need to live, um, and so I think like it's a massive problem on the left, um, massive. And like, you know, could potentially leave us gridlocked or much worse for a long time if, um, you know, people of goodwill and <laughs> sort of can't break out of this sort of like, this sort of the box that we've we've put ourselves in. Um, so anyway, sorry that the short answer is, I don't see a ton of it, at least not on the institutional level. Um, I could point to, you know, a handful of thinkers, maybe a couple of politicians who are thinking really well about this kind of stuff. But no, I think, you know, Chris is getting some attention for taking up this line of of inquiry for a reason, because it's weird and exciting for a Democratic senator to be talking about meaning and loneliness and to be to be talking about belonging and spirituality. So
0: these are these are all fundamental things. Yeah. Right, that a that a leader talks about. So let me give a practical a practical application of this. Yesterday, or on Saturday in Georgia, there are a handful of white supremacists holding Nazi flags outside of a synagogue while people are at worship. Yeah. Now to me. What a political leader does is let's start with Senator Ossoff, right? He calls up, uh, he calls up his, um, he calls up, um, he calls up the Republican governor, calls up the Democratic senator, calls up the Jewish governor of Pennsylvania the state that is the center of religious tolerance in this country. And he invites Americans of all faith to come to Georgia to link Mm. arms around that synagogue. Mm. In America, the Nazi can be there, but they will always be outnumbered, Mm. right? To bring people together, to create a community around the broadest conceivable aperture that has any meaning. And that's Mm. the American aperture, it doesn't mean anything to be a North American. It doesn't mean anything to be a Western Hemispherian, but it means something to be an American. And being an American should have dominance in my view over any other identity um, in, the, in, the, in, in the country. And, and to be an American, you know, in this, in this moment of times is to, is to be called on to believe in certain things, and certain ideals, and certain principles. Um, if you have a society where one of the political parties is uncomfortable arguing in favor of the concept of the public good for whatever reason, right? You're almost at an irrecoverable spot Stage, right? So I I grew up in in New Jersey. And so not an ideological Republican, not a conservative Republican. This was the Republican Party of Christy Whitman and Tom Kane. It was the moderate, good government party, right? Against against Democratic machines. Every person, without exception, almost right, can count the numbers on my hands and toes. Every person that I ever worked with in politics sold out on everything, not what I thought that they believed in, but what they said they believed in. Right, they sold it out, right? They they walked away, right? They walked away from it utterly, completely, and and abandoned it. Hmm. And so- A politics that does not permit an argumentation that we are connected in a community through our Americanism puts us in a lot of trouble because the only way that you can deal with factionalism is by giving something broader and bigger for people to belong to. And what could possibly be more glorious than belonging to the American family, that you'd rather trade that into the MAGA family? And this is the fundamental deficiency, right, with the the, quote-unquote, such as they are the never-Trump leaders in the Republican Party, like Larry Hogan, who's a great guy. Larry Hogan is, in my view, right, Larry Hogan wants to be the governor of your state, tremendous, he's completely competent, something terrible happens, he's going to be on the job, he's a pragmatic guy, are you going to agree with everything he does, no, Um, but totally responsible functioning adult, and he says, I'm not going to run for president, and he talks about Trump and the MAGA movement, but there's not a word about the country right, just about the health of the Republican Party, as in we need to fight and deal with this MAGA movement because it's bad for the Republican Party after five years, because it may cause us to lose the next election, as opposed to more broadly, the societal cancer, yeah. right, That's that's been unleashed by it, that needs treatment. And so I guess like my question for you, as we kind of kind of run up on the end, is why isn't Chris Murphy running for president? because the person who wrote this and understands this is a person who should be running to lead this
1: country (laughs) you gotta you gotta get him on and ask him i i uh yeah i don't know i don't know i mean i I think it's an interesting prospect from my perspective. Um, you'd you'd have to talk to him about what he what he thinks about that. Right. Um, I know that's an unfair question to you, but but it is
0: but it is a but it is a fair question because it's not fair to it's not fair to Chris Murphy, right? You know, philosophically, because I mean, first off, you know this about Chris Murphy, right? The fact that his level of political fame is such that it is denotes a level of maturity, seriousness, decency, and normalcy, right? The reason you don't know about him, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Q. Public, like you might know about Marjorie Taylor Greene is because Chris Murphy is doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? He's a very, very effective advocate, right? He's doing hard work. He's doing good things. He's thinking very deeply, right, about like society, about the country, right, about, about, the, about, the, about the family. But I think one of the great crises philosophically is a crisis of cowardice in the Republican yeah. party, right? And so the thing that's always been true about the country is it's produced the right leaders at the right moment of time. Many of them have had terribly fatalistic endings, Many of them were reluctant to be called, but called they were, and probably they rendered profound service to the, to the nation in terms of making it better. And it just seems to me, the country would be a lot better off in a better direction you know, with more Chris Murphy's in the Senate, more White House, someday Chris Murphy's in the House and more Senator Murphy's into a presidential race, if not this one or the next, because we're going to have to start talking about some of this stuff at the end of the day.
1: I I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, I, I I think, I don't know exactly, you know, how long we muddle along in a state of kind of relative functionality, but a kind of like deep soullessness and and like feeling of of disconnection and disintegration. It doesn't seem like it can can go on forever. Um, And yeah, I I think it's just so deeply imperative that people just snap out of it. And people with power, like people who have the luxury of thinking on, on a large scale about how ought we to, you know, run this this society we have together? You know, really need to start thinking seriously about about where we are and and it's, you know why are we doing? this? Why are we a country like? Um, Almost without exception, every
0: billionaire that I've ever met, and I've met a lot. Um, there are a few exceptions to this. Um, Oprah is an exception to this. Um. But generally speaking, your average billionaire has this exceptional talent at a thing, or did a thing. But most of them, through my experience, if you were to measure common sense on the one to 10 scale, right, or you know, barely register above being able to cross the street by themselves, right? Let al- let alone being involved in the politics of the country um, or being perceived by the citizenry as having particular wisdom because they're wealth. Because most of them, in the language of your ordinary guy out there, right, you know, would register when that ordinary guy meets them as total fucking morons.
1: Well, look, and like we've... So, so this... um Hungarian economist Karl Polanyi had this book, um, in, uh, early 20th century, where he talks about the disembedding of modern economics, where we we take economics out of any any sort of framework of understanding, like what is society for, what are our goals as a people, and we sort of say like, you know, we let the economy run on its own standards, right? And so that leads to a situation of something like shareholder capitalism, where like. If, you're, if you are increasing the value of the shares in the company, you are running a successful company by definition, right? And so you can get a Zuckerberg who's running a very successful company in Facebook or in Meta, I guess it's called, because why? Because it's, it's winning lots of users, it's keeping them engaged and it's turning lots of profits, right? Like we, we subtract the question of like, okay, is it making good things? right like is it making things that are good for people is it making things that are good for society it's just it's been made a separate set of questions right so like yeah you can become a billionaire with no deep sense of reality right like no i mean there's a little sliver of reality you have to attend to well and perceptibly um, but like yeah these aren't leaders in any robust sense for sure right but but we have a system where you can get on this one track of like can you maximize shareholder value oh, can you, if so, then you are a success. You are in fact a great man or woman. Um, it is despicable. And like, <laughs> it's a crazy unsustainable way to to think about society, to think about power, creativity, all, all this stuff.
0: I think it's an incredibly small number of people who have any real chance um, and the necessary vision to get this country on the on the on the right path that are that are engaged within the current political system i i think Gretchen Whitmer's in, is an extremely impressive leader in Michigan um, i like Gavin Newsom and uh, and i'm a i'm a big Chris Murphy fan um, but when you when you look out ahead um in these years ahead we're going to need to have an argument that evolves beyond the staleness of its present constitution
1: for sure but uh, you know uh, on a hopeful note like i don't know that it's that hard right like we talked about bernie sanders earlier today he was electrifying to young people electrifying right and like it, what was his message? His message was the billionaires are screwing people over. Like we need to give working people a chance. Like it was no great act of political genius. Um, he's look, he's an old guy. Like he's from well, Vermont. Like he, 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 he may have he, been.
0: He may have been the first person who just unquestionably, undebatably, in their lifetime. Uh, well, well, first off. Bernie Sanders is an idealist. Sure. All right. Um, He's an idealist. And, you know, I have lots of things I don't agree with him on, but he's an idealist and people respond to idealism. Right. And, um, you know, inherent in the Bernie Sanders message was an indictment, but also a solution. Right. And this is where some commentators have kind of confuse the divergences in the message between a Sanders and a Trump, right? You know, Bernie Sanders said, we'll make it better. You know, um, Donald Trump said,
1: put me in power. (laughs) You know, two different different things. No, he was going to make America great again. He didn't get around Uh, to it. That was was the idea. Um, And I mean, Bernie, look, like, this is why I say, like, I don't, like, I don't think we're, Miles and miles away from being able to like produce these kind of individuals as a society. Like Bernie didn't necessarily have like a, a deep, beautiful, rich, multifaceted picture of what kind of society we're trying to produce. Right. Like he's not a great cultural thinker. Like what he understands is mostly like material stuff is economics. Like, are people being screwed? Yes, they are. Like, we got to stop that. That's not fair. <laughs> um, you know and he resonated so much and he electrified people so much um so i you know i i think I, I don't know exactly what the mechanism is for sort of recruiting people like that to run for offices or whatever but in a country this large <laughs> with these kind of resources you got to believe that we can produce people who will, you know who will have integrity and tell the truth i don't know you know again i don't know where to get them or how to get them running but you <laughs> gotta be out we there you gotta get them we gotta yeah. get them well I, I enjoyed the
0: conversation today thank you very much for taking no it and, um, i encourage everybody to read this remarkable uh op-ed column uh, that is so important for the country it is the foundation of what can become a platform It is the seeds of what can become a great political vision uh, for reform. All of the stardust is in that essay. And uh, you wrote it um, along with a United States Senator. And I think it's significant. Politics is a business of ideas and you have called for something, not a policy. Uh, but for a reformation of the American spirit and a rehabilitation of the American character through it. Um, We have a great crisis of character in America. We have a great crisis of cowardice. Uh, We have a political party that has betrayed itself, its traditions, its charter, and become faithless to the constitution that it exists to promote, preserve, and defend. And thus the country is in an hour of crisis. And the defeat of this movement cannot simply be uh, an electoral transaction because at the end of the day, there will be an election when that ball That fascist ball is kicked through the goal, and it gets in there in a closely divided country. So the only way out of this mess is to appeal to something better. And and the better is what you guys wrote about, and you really deserve a tremendous amount of credit for it. And I appreciate your generosity with your time to be able to talk about these things and to talk about them. A little bit abstractly, which I think is important to do sometimes.
1: Well, amen, man. Thank you. Amen to all of that. And and thanks for thanks for having me on. This was a, a lot of fun. You got it. Thank you, the important.